Hey, let me just take a, talk, a moment to talk about heavy duty. It's coming up two weeks from this weekend. Um, it's not politically correct. But we live in a culture that's, that's subsliding away, in the words of Paul Simon. And we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of Romans, and it's going to get in our chili. But I mean it, folks. And you know, you know I'm always talking about the greatest series. But uh, this may be the three most important weeks you'll spend in church. And so that starts two weekends from today. Okay, but we're in valleys today, and we have two more weekends of valleys. And, and so this morning, I want to talk to you about what is to me the most intriguing of all the valleys in the series. You know, one of the things that uh, the 20th century gave us, it gave us the opportunity with the usage of video to, re- to relive crisis or catastrophic moments. And the most chilling aspect of it was that it gave us the opportunity to return to those uns unsuspecting moments of normalcy. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Some of you can remember the Challenger explosion in 86. And how many times have we watched the footage of the astronauts walking, smiling, getting ready to board the Challenger? And, and everybody was excited because that was the first time that a school teacher was going up. And we see them walk down you know, with their astronaut jumpsuits on, walking and smiling, waving to the cameras. And yet we know as we watch the the video, we know what's about to happen. We have in our mind the images of the Challenger exploding exploding, and the pieces falling to the ground. For others of you who are younger, uh, you may not remember the Challenger explosion, but you may remember a morning in September in 2001. And you've seen the video footage of the pristine towers, the World Trade Center standing. And there, of course, are the jets about to fly into the towers. And there's something within us that wants to cry out. I mean, it's almost as if a silent scream comes to us. But we can't do anything about it because it's on video. For me, um, and I'm giving away my age here, for me, there's one day that lives out more starkly and more painfully than any other historic day. I was in the second grade in Fort Worth, Texas, on Friday morning in November of 1963. The night before, I'd been riding in the back seat of my parents' car down I-35 towards downtown Fort Worth, and I saw that the outline of the downtown skyscrapers were lighted, or was lighted. And I knew that November the 21st, it was before Thanksgiving, and the lights were never turned on before Thanksgiving. It was a cultural thing in Fort Worth that Thanksgiving night, the lights would be flipped on, and throughout the Christmas season, the buildings would be, the outlines of the buildings would be lighted. And I still remember, I can take myself back to that moment when my dad turned from the driver's seat and said, President Kennedy is in town tonight. We were so excited in Fort Worth to have the young president in our town. And it had been a good trip for him. He had accomplished all his goals and missions. He just had one more stop before he was to leave. 30-minute flight over to Dallas. And how many of us can remember, if you're my age, how many of us can remember the scene as Air Force One landed in Love Field? The president, young, handsome, smiling, walks down, waving at the crowds, pink-clad first lady, handed the roses, and they get in the back seat of that big Lincoln. I remember that afternoon when the principal came on the intercom and told us the bad news. Hundreds of times, hundreds of times, I have watched the Zapruder film and other video. 
And I watched as the president waved from the back seat, as though nothing were wrong, as though life would never end. I watched him as he waved to the crowd, and everyone smiling. And then there is that moment in the, in the parade where there was a sharp left turn into Dealey Plaza. And even now, I watch the film footage, and I want to scream out to the footage, don't turn on Elm Street, don't make the left turn, just go straight, there's a sniper in the building. But I can't do that, and you and I, even though we may go back to those moments of normalcy in the videos before the catastrophe happens, we, we discover there is a stubborn intransigence to real time. Although we may want to change what the outcome is, as many times as we watch the video, it isn't going to change. There is another stubborn intransigence that some of us watch in life, and it's not videotape. It is when someone we love very much is making bad choices, and they may be flying high. They're looking as if they have no problems in the world, and yet we who understand how life works watch them make bad choice after bad choice. We understand that you cannot flip God off and win, that you do harvest what you plant, and we are in a low place, even though it's not our lives necessarily, but we love these people and we watch them make stupid choices. And while they're flying high, we are in a valley. We are in what the Bible calls the valley of vision. We see a future they can't see. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1, there's just a, a little prescript to chapter 22, and it just simply says a message concerning the valley of vision. For the next few moments, that's what I want to bring to you. I want to bring to you a message concerning the valley of vision. I want to talk to you about when you're in a low place because you love somebody who's making bad choices, and they're sailing high, but you know where they're headed, and you're going through a difficult season just trying to handle it because you know, or at least unless they change, you know what's going to happen. Well, if you'll allow me just a few moments, I would like to take you back in history and introduce you to this man named Isaiah and let you know that he is a prophet. He had grown up in a well-to-do family, but early on in life, God had tapped him to do the job that I do, which was basically to speak for people on behalf of God. There were good times for men to be prophets in the Bible, but this was a bad time because Isaiah's people, the nation, whole nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, and specifically God's holy city, Jerusalem, had been worshiping idols for a long time. Basically, they had found things, they had found practices they loved more than God and they loved more than living for God. And so basically, they had blown God off and they were doing whatever they wanted to do. In fact, when Isaiah came to the, to the, to the prophecy, when he came to the place where he was going to speak for God, the people of Jerusalem were having a nonstop party. And interestingly, they would go up to their rooftops. They lived in houses that, well, the roofs were flat. And the rooftops of the house were almost like our patios or our decks. And so these people who lived in Jerusalem, they would go, to the, they would go up on the rooftops and they would party all night. They would get, get high. They would have orgies. They would sleep around. It was just sex and getting high and having fun. It was party time. And God had told Isaiah that it wasn't going to end well. And God had specifically told him who the powers were who were going to come, overcome, overrun Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, overrun God's people, take them into captivity, and basically brutalize them. And so you can put yourself in Isaiah's place because while everybody else is partying and going crazy, 
and up on the rooftop in a high place. Isaiah is down in a low place because he knows what they're doing. He knows the outcome of what they're doing. God has already told them what is going to happen. Now let's take that from Isaiah's time to 2012. Has that ever happened to you? Have you loved somebody who was making bad choices and bad stuff and you knew they were headed for trouble and yet they didn't have any concern about it at all? Let me ask you this. And I know that this has certainly been my experience. Maybe it's been yours. Have you ever wondered how that smart people can do stupid things? I know I do. I mean, I, I, I sometimes see people make bad choices and do foolish things who are educated, smart, brilliant people in many other areas. And I wonder, how does a person get to the place where they can make series of choices that in any other scenario, in any other environment, they themselves would think, wow, this is crazy. How does a person get there? What you and I need to understand, this is helpful to me, what you and I need to understand is they don't get there in a moment. There's a process that takes place. If you've ever loved somebody who is making dumb choices, there, there are processes, and Isaiah fortunately carries us through that process and helps us see how it happens. Let me show you how, let me just follow Isaiah and show you how people get to this place. Number one, they lose touch with God. In Isaiah chapter one, verse three, listen to what Isaiah says. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel does not know its master. Anytime anyone makes series of bad choices, they have lost touch with their creator. God said to Isaiah, you know, even the oxen out there are smarter than these people. And then God thought about it, and he said, you know what, even the donkeys are smarter. Now, guys, I grew up in the city, and I live in the suburbs, so I have no oxen, I have no donkeys, but I have a toy poodle. <laughs> He's eight years old, his name is Fred, and Fred thinks I like him. He is really Mary Alice's dog. But yeah, I cannot escape Fred. I happened to be, I was having breakfast when I was thinking about this particular verse, and Fred was sitting next to my chair. Actually, he was jumping up on me because Fred thinks I am the soft touch in the family. And while I was thinking about this text, I thought, I don't have any oxen, I don't have any donkeys, but I do have a French poodle. And I thought, you know what? There's certain things that Fred is convinced of. Fred may not be brilliant, but he is perfectly convinced of three things. Number one, he's convinced that I exist. And he's never been to school. He's never been to grad school. He's never even been to obedience school. He's never been to a biology course. He doesn't understand kingdom, phylum, subphylum, species. He doesn't understand any of that. He cannot speak English. But I'll tell you one thing. Fred's convinced that I exist. And Fred doesn't get very far away from me. And then the second thing Fred's convinced of is Fred is convinced that I want to do him good. If he sees me with a plate of food, he's convinced I want to give him part of it. <laughs> that is a fact. Whether I want to or not, he's convinced that I do. I mean, because when he looks at me, he just has this connection. He looks at me and it's like, surely you want to give me part of that. <laughs> and he is convinced that I reward good behavior. You know what, my dog, my French poodle, as nutty and crazy as he is, he's smarter than a lot of people when it comes to a relationship with God because they're not convinced he exists. I mean, they may be Christians, it may be part of their theological repertoire to say, I believe in God, but they live as though God doesn't exist. My French poodle is smarter than that. And, and they don't understand that God wants to give, God does want to bless us. God does want to give us good things. And they don't understand that God rewards choices that we make if they're choices that are pleasing to him. And so whenever you see anybody who's in a season of making bad choices, the first thing that's happened to them is they've lost contact with their creator. And then the second thing that happens 
And this is in Isaiah 44, verse 18. You know, Isaiah is talking about his people. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Look at this expression. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. Whenever we lose touch with our, con our creator, the next thing that happens is we stop thinking. When we see somebody making foolish choices, what's the first question that comes to our mind? What are they thinking? Well, they're not. Because somewhere along the line, they lost touch with God. And then they just quit thinking. And then here's what happens oftentimes when people quit thinking. Someone like you or me comes along and we say, hey, wait a minute. That's not right. You can't do that. You're above that. You're better than that. In Isaiah 42, verse 20, listen to this. You see and recognize what is right, but refuse to act on it. You hear with your ears, but you really don't listen. So here's the person. Now think about this, this, this evolution that's taking place. Number one, they lose contact with God. Number two, they stop thinking clearly. Number three, somebody comes along and says, hey, what you're doing is not right. They listen. They may even agree. They may even say, you know, I know this is wrong. How many times have I had somebody say that to me? I know this is wrong, but I'm not going to change. I know I shouldn't leave my wife for this other woman. I know I shouldn't leave my husband for this other guy. I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't use too much alcohol. I know that. Yeah, I know. But I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It's my life. It's my life. In other words, I know what's right, but I'm not going to do it. But people don't stay there very long. If you've ever worked with somebody in this scenario, you know they don't stay there very long because they do what Isaiah talks about next. In Isaiah 5 verse 20, it says, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. See, for a moment they may say, okay, I know what you're saying is right, yeah, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But, but nobody stays there very long. They do what we do in postmodern 2012 America. They switch the cards so that good now becomes bad and bad becomes good. And so when you say to them, hey, you're making bad choices, well, who's to say it's a bad choice? And after a while, you're a bad person for judging me. See? See how that works? I switch the cards. I quit thinking about God as my creator, stopped thinking clearly. Somebody told me what I was doing is wrong. For a while, I agreed with it. Yep, that's a bad choice, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. It's my life. Then after a while, I don't think I want to live that way because I don't want to constantly face the fact that I'm doing stupid stuff. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to switch the cards. And I'm going to say that everybody who's doing right is wrong and what I'm doing is right. And if you look at what Isaiah said, he said sorrow waits for people like that. Guys, that's where we are in 2012 America. Bad has become good and good has become bad. But we need to, and this is one thing about heavy duty, we need to understand God still knows the difference. And five seconds after we die, this sappy culture that we live in is going to have absolutely zero control of our destinies. There is a living God who is the creator of the universe, and he knows where the cards belong. We may have switched them. But we have a full God. And that's how they could be going crazy on the rooftops while that poor Isaiah is down the valley. And, and look at how Isaiah said, what he said to them. And you may have said something like this to somebody you loved. After, after it says the, the message about the Valley of Vision, verse 1 says, what's going on here anyway? All this partying and noise making, shouting and cheering in the streets, the city noisy with celebrations. You have no brave soldiers to honor, no combat heroes to be proud of. 
Your leaders were all cowards captured without even lifting a sword. A country of cowards captured escaping the battle. I say, I don't understand what the party's about. What's everybody going crazy for? What are we celebrating here? We winning? No, they weren't winning. They were already in the slippery slope down to captivity. Well, I think we've, I think we've exhausted that. Let's go now to the next 15 minutes of this talk, and let's talk to, talk to each other about how we're going to handle it when somebody we love is making dumb choices. How do you handle being in the valley of vision? Again, these are not things that I've come up with. These are just things that I found in the Bible. I'm going to give you five things that you and I need to do when somebody we love make, is making dumb choices and we're in the valley of vision. Here's number one. It's going to sound peculiar, but in 2012 America, it's really important for us. Number one, don't feel left out when you miss the party. This is one time that the view's better in the valley than it is on the rooftop. Because here's the thing. If you are a person who believes in what is right, you're going to find yourself in the minority in 2012. How do you feel about missing the party? Some of us can't miss the party. Some of us can't be politically incorrect. For some of us to be told that we're wrong or that we're on the outside or that we're not popular, for some of us, we wilt like a, a shrinking violet. We cannot handle being unpopular. How do, you, how do you handle it when you miss the party? How do you handle it when the majority, like in Isaiah's days, the, the majority of the people around you are making dumb choices and you're the one who's out of step? When I, when I read Isaiah, it looks like the question that everybody asked him was, what's wrong with you, dude? Where are you? Man, we're having a party. It's going to be a party tonight. We're going to have fun. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to, pull, we're going to pull kegger. We're going, to get, we're going to get drunk. We're going to get high, and you can just go on from there. We're going to have a good time. Where are you? Listen to this, Isaiah 22.4. In the midst of the shouting, I said, let me alone. Alone is a minority, isn't it? Isaiah, let me alone. Let me grieve by myself. Don't tell me it's going to be all right. It's not going to be all right. When I hear those words, 35 years of pastoring come back to me. I don't counsel much anymore. But in the days when I did, I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in the office and I have pleaded with people not to do foolish things. I have begged them. So many times it's been marriage breakups. It's been the breakup of a home. Here is the guy who is married to a, a good woman. She's not perfect, but she loves God. They have beautiful kids. But he meets some gal who's, you know, 10, 15 years younger. And she starts paying attention to him. And he says, you know what? I know I have, I, I, you know, go back to number three there with Isaiah. I know what's right, but I'm going to do this anyway. It's my life. And then he switches the cards. You know, I had a guy tell me one time, God brought this woman into my life. I didn't say it, but the next words that I felt like saying were, don't make me slap you. <laughs> you see how people switch the cards? Or I, I remember talking to, to ladies, married to good guys. They're not perfect, you know. Maybe they're not George Clooney, but a good guy. Loved her, loved the kids. And yet she finds somebody at work. He understands me. He doesn't understand his wife, but <laughs> and let me just tell you the reason why I get intense at that moment, because I know I'm pleading for some kids who don't get a vote. And I'm saying, you can't do this. Or I'm talking to, I'm talking to a young woman, and she's dating a guy, and, and he's got anger issues, and, and she says, you know, he doesn't really hit me very much. 
And it's only when he gets really mad and, and then he just is so sorry. And, and when I, I sit there in the Valley of Vision and I say, don't, don't, you, don't you know what's going to happen? Here's what comes back to me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Why are they comforting me? And on, on, and on what basis is it going to be okay? In our culture today, there's a teenager telling a parent, you know what, I, I can text while I drive, don't, don't bother me, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to have a wreck. I can sleep with whoever I want to, it's going to be okay. I can leave my, my marriage partner, it's going to be okay. My kids are going to be okay. Man, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff. I wrote down some of the stuff that people have told me. God and me are tight. God has my back. I can handle this. I counseled a pastor who was leaving his wife and having an affair with a woman, and he said to me, and this is his words, I promise. He said, I still pray. Are you kidding me? Man, here's the deal. I mean, I know maybe I could sound like I'm, I'm, I'm a little edgy today, and I need to be in the culture that you and I live in. I love what Isaiah said. Don't tell me it's going to be all right. It's not going to be all right. Missing the party can be a lonely feeling, but don't forget there are two kinds of people here. Before I tell you what they are, I need to read you a little Bible story. In the book of Daniel, this is another book where there was another guy who was a, a, a leader for God. Daniel kept getting carried away into captivity. He was a Jewish boy, got carried away by the Babylonians. The Babylonians got defeated. Another power took over. Then another power took, took over that power. And, and every time he would, a new regime would come in, Daniel would just rise to the top. Because the Bible says he had a spirit of excellence in him. We'll talk about that someday. Daniel here is an older guy by this point. He's already been through a lot of administrations. And there was a king by the name of Belshazzar who was a young man. And he was full of himself. And basically he, 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 had, he decides to have a party. And why does the king of the Babylonians decide that he wants to flip off the God of the Hebrews? I mean of all gods he can pick on, why does he pick on the God of heaven? But Belshazzar, this is in Daniel chapter 5, you want to read the whole story. Belshazzar throws a party, and here's what he decides to do. They have captured the sacred golden vessels from the temple that were meant to worship God with. Belshazzar decides to throw a party, bring out those golden vessels, fill them up with liquor, and give all his leaders a good time. You think that got God's attention? Oh boy. Let's read. They drank the wine, drunkenly praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And at that very moment, I love God's sense of drama here. This is one of my favorite things. I hope God kept this on video. I want to watch this. At that very moment, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the lamp illumined whitewashed wall of the palace. When the king saw the disembodied hand riding away, that kind of stopped the party. He went white as a ghost, scared out of his wits, his legs went limp, and his knees knocked. So he yelled for the enchanters. He told these Babylonian magi, anyone who can read this writing on the walls, in the language he didn't, rep he didn't recognize, came from God. Anyone who can read this writing on the wall, tell me what it means, and he'll be famous and rich. One after the other, they try, but they can make no sense of it. Says the queen said, this thing is the queen mother. The queen said, don't sit around looking like ghosts. There is a man in your kingdom who is full of the divine Holy Spirit. Now here's the verse that stands out to me. Daniel chapter 5, verse 12. Have Daniel 
called in. He'll tell you what's going on here. Let me ask you a question. You are brilliant people. Why did Daniel have to be called in? He wasn't at the party. Daniel came in, he answered the king, you can keep your gifts, give them somebody else, but I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. There are two kinds of people when the world's falling apart. There are those at the party, and there are those who can read the writing on the wall. See, the writing on the wall is what's about to happen. And people who can read the writing on the wall usually aren't at the party, and people at the party usually can't read the writing on the wall. So all I'm trying to say to you is this. When you're in the Valley of Vision and other people are doing crazy stuff, don't feel left out when you're not invited to the party. Are you okay with being in the minority? Are you okay with people telling you you're politically correct? Let me ask you this one. Are you okay with people telling you that you're the one who is doing wrong? Number two, quickly. I said five things. While Isaiah was in the Valley of Vision, it's clear that he didn't stay there because the rest of the book of Isaiah is a book where he gets up and tries to change the culture and tries to have an impact. The second thing that you and I can do is we can pray. Right now, I am doing the job of a, a prophet or a minister or a preacher. I'm speaking to you for God. Prayer is when we talk to God about people. And last, last night, Jonathan and I were talking about a friend who has left behind his wife and he's a Christian man and his kids are going through a difficult time and I thought and nobody seems to be able to get through to him and I thought you know what we can do we can pray for him and I'll be honest and you can you can think whatever you want to think about me when people get stubborn like that and they refuse to listen I've just said God do whatever you have to do to get their attention if they can't see the light turn up the heat I mean Jesus said, and I'm, I didn't say this because it freaks me out, and I still don't know what he means by this, but Jesus said, look, if, you're, if, you're, if your right hand troubles you, if it keeps you out of hell, cut it off and throw it away because it's better to go into heaven with one hand than it is to, to go into hell fire with both hands. So I, I have no idea exactly what that means. I just draw from that an inference that it would be better to go through some difficult times down here a little bit if it got our attention and caused us to turn around. So we can pray. And you knew I was going to get here. There is a time to confront. Now, everything depends on your personality here because some of you don't mind confronting at all. It's just part of your DNA. <laughs> some of you would say you have the gift of prop, being a prophet. I don't know what it is, but just some of us, our personality, we don't have any problem looking at somebody in the eye and say, you're doing wrong. Me, I have a hard time confronting. It is my nature to tell people what they want to hear. It is my nature to be positive. In fact, someone told me, in fact, I've been told this all, out, all through my life. Even when you're negative, you still sound positive. So I don't like to confront people. It's hard for me. How do you confront somebody? Because, see, here is the challenge. You know, and, and maybe I need to be honest about this in a, in a way that, that set, sort of prefaces everything I'm about to say. Sometimes confronting can be counterproductive. If confronting is handled wrongly, it can, it can push people away. The Bible calls it speaking the truth in love. I, I was so thankful to find this verse. I told Mary Alice, I don't know how I missed this all these years. There is a, an example of confrontation in the Bible that is a primer on how to confront someone successfully. The person being confronted is King David. 
and the person confronting him is his top military man. David wants to do something that is very foolish. David has decided he wants to number his troops. He wants to count how many soldiers he has. God had made it clear that that was one thing that David was never to do. This was an act of trust on David's part. David was to trust God to grow the army to be sufficient to deal with any foe. David was not at war. He was not really needing to know how many troops he had. But he was later in life, and people perhaps had begun to take his leadership for granted. David was wanting the people to know how successful a king he had been. He wanted to say, when I took over, we had this many troops. Now we have this many troops. And it was a great sin against God, and 58,000 men died as a result of David's bad decision. But Joab, his top leader who had served David all his life, Joab tried to talk David out of it. And what we're going to do is we're going to read Joab's confrontation, and what we're going to see is there are four punctuation marks that separate four statements, and what is here is priceless when it comes to confronting someone. Let's read it together. Joab resisted. May God multiply his people by hundreds. Don't they all belong to the master, my king? Why on earth would you do a thing like this? Why risk getting Israel in trouble with God? That, ladies and gentlemen, is some of the best advice you and I have ever gotten about how to confront somebody. Let's unpack that. Number one, I want you, David, I want you to have everything you want. May God increase your army by hundreds. When you see somebody who is making foolish choices, it's because they want something or maybe even feel that they need something. But what's the problem? They're going about it the wrong way. If you've ever been a parent, you know what this is like to have kids who go after something, but they're going after it the wrong way. And I think it's really important for us to preface our confrontation by saying, look, I'm not, I'm not your enemy. I'm not against you. I want you to have everything you want. I want you to have the best in life. I want you to have everything you need. See, God... For most of us, God wants us to have sex. He just wants us to have it in the right situation. God wants you to have money. just wants you to get it the right way. God wants you to have a good career, but he wants you to go about it the right way. And Joab said to David, sir, I want you to have everything you want. I want you to have more than what you have today. I want you to be blessed a hundred times what you have. I'm not against you, David. The second thing he said was, don't all the soldiers already belong to you, sir? Think about what you've got right now that you could stand to lose. Man, how many times have I confronted somebody? They were going after something and what they didn't realize, they were about to lose. They were about to lose people. They were about to lose opportunity. They were lose, about to lose situations that they could never replace. And Joab gently reminded David, sir, you already have a powerful army. You've got so many blessings, and you could lose all this. And the third thing he asked, I think is really interesting, he said, where's the sense in this? David, this is out of character for you. This doesn't make any sense. What did he say? He said, uh, why on earth would you do a thing like this? I think that's a healthy thing to, when you're confronting somebody to say, what in the world are you thinking? I want the best for you. And think about what you could stand to lose <clears throat> And where's the wisdom in this? And then the fourth thing he said was, you know, you could get in trouble with God and risk hurting a lot of innocent people. Isn't that great? If you want to know how to confront somebody, that is an absolute primer on how to confront. 
Number four, I wouldn't have put this in the sermon, but God puts it in the Bible, so I think I need to give it to you. There's an odd psychology when we try to rescue somebody who's in trouble. If we're not careful, we can fall into the same trouble ourselves. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself. You also may be tempted. Lots of stories in my background of knowing people who are at work. And somebody at work is doing something foolish. Maybe he's beginning to sleep with somebody or he's about to think about leaving his wife. And there's a woman at work who's a God follower. And she says, you know what, I need to step in and help him. And she begins to talk with him. And they start going to lunch together and talking about his issues and his problems. The next thing I know, those two are having an affair. It is that odd psychology where someone who tries to rescue a drowning person winds up drowning themselves. See, when people make foolish choices, those are human things. And we're humans. And so God is saying, hey, watch yourself. Remember that you too are human. And number five, and I'll close with this. Now, before I get there, let me, let me, let me talk about something. There are people today who have hit the wall you could not get that person into a church with a gun. And here's why. When they were going crazy, when they were up on the rooftop partying, there were God followers who were in the Valley of Vision. And the God followers confronted and prayed for, and they said to this man, to this woman, you're going to hit the wall. And they said no, and they switched the cards, did all the stuff that we've talked about. And then they hit the wall. And here's what the God followers did. They took out a great big spiritual Sharpie, a black Sharpie, and drew a big X on that person. And that person who hit the wall realized, I'm all by myself now. So if you're in the valley of vision and somebody you love is making foolish choices, here's what you need to do if they will not listen to you and if they're sailing on for the wall. Even before they hit the wall, start making plans for how you're going to restore them. So easy to just get out a marker and mark them out. Casualty. Those of you who are old New Springers, you know I have a favorite verse in 2 Samuel. In fact, if I ever had to describe what New Spring is about, I would choose this particular verse. A wise woman is talking to King David, and here's what she said. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. My favorite paraphrase is God's dreaming up schemes to bring rebels home. And when it's your child, or it's your mate, or it's your friend, or it's your person that you worship with at church, and they won't listen to you, and they're going crazy, and they're hit, about to hit the wall, and they won't listen to you, you start praying for them, and you're saying, okay, they're going to hit the wall, and they're going to suffer, and they're going to be in broken pieces. God, how can you use me to bring them back? God, how can you use me to restore that person? You guys know I always say I hate religion. And although the Bible's filled with rules, it's not, a, it's not a book of rules for me. 
Because everything God tells me to do, I always know it's for his good and my good. But I also understand what God is after. God hasn't put a whole lot of rules out there for me just to jump through hoops and make my life miserable. Do you know what God wants more than anything else? God wants children. And you know what he wants from his children? He wants his children to be like him. See, God tells me to love because he loves. God tells me to forgive because he forgives. God tells me to live a clean life because he's holy. And God tells me to restore broken people because God restores broken people. And God tells me to think about ways to help broken people before they hit the wall because God thinks about ways to help broken people before they hit the wall. Do you know who the first person was in the valley? It was God. Do you know when God was in the valley? Before he ever created the world. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to flip him off. He knew before he made them. He understood clearly he was going to give them every advantage, put them in a perfect place, in a perfect environment. And when they had one choice to make, they would choose against him. And then he knew it would open up all kinds of horrible things for the world. And he knew you and I would come along and do the same thing. Did you know this? This may be news to some of you. Did you know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ was crucified in the mind of God before the world was ever created? That means that before God ever made the world, before the first human beings were ever here, God had already decided that he had a rescue plan to bring us back when we hit the wall. Let me take the message for the last minute in a different direction. If I, if I, if I said to you, the paraphrase that God is dreaming up schemes to bring rebels home, how many of us would say, I'm a rebel? <laughs> I've been the one partying on a rooftop. Might have been a party of substance abuse. Might have been a party of sleeping around. Could be a party of religious pride. All of us have had the party of self. Isn't it good to know that God has made a way for rebels to come home? And he doesn't say adopt a code. He says accept a person. I think it's interesting that when Jesus died, he died with his arms outstretched as though he were welcoming us to come home. See, here's what God did. He let his son Jesus come into our world, God and human at the same time, and he lived the life that you and I could not live. So he ran the table. He did everything perfect. And then he laid down on the cross, and for six and a half hours, God tortured his son to pay for your and my sin so that when it was finished, God could say to rebels, come home, come like you are, don't dress yourself up. You come like you are. And when you do, when you come to him, based on what, now here's the important thing, based on what Jesus did, not based on what we do, but based on what Jesus did, rebels can come home. And if you're here today and you say, Mark, I don't think I've ever really understood that. I thought I had to be good enough to go to heaven. I thought I had to, you know, do religious things. If you've never had that moment in your life where you've invited Jesus to come in, and you said, Lord, I want to come home. I'm going to do that. I want to have a moment with you right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And these are just words, but the important thing is what you mean. I'll say them slowly. Because if you want to pray with me, I want you to mean these from your heart. So I want to say them so you can think about them. See if you really want to say these things to God. Here we go. Let's pray. Dear God, I am a sinner. 
and I can't be perfect. But I believe you made a way for me to come back to you. Thank you for not Xing me out. Thank you for not giving up on me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. Today I receive him as my savior and my king. I come home. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I have a gift I want to give you. There's a, a packet that we have here at New Spring. There's a DVD in it, also a little book that answers a lot of questions that I wrote. So if you just prayed to receive Christ, please come and get this. It's free. It won't cost you anything. There's also a little coupon for a new Bible. And you can get this in a couple of places. All you have to do is bring us, talk to us card. You'll see a little picture of the packet right here. And uh, just say, hey, I, I, I put my glasses back on, so I'll make sure I get the wording just right. <laughs> Today I prayed to receive Christ. And just check the box. All you have to do is bring that. There's guest services right out there, and there's guest services, a small one right next to the coffee shop in the back entrance. Also, if you're our guest for the first time, please come by. Just bring this by. We have a gift we want to give you. We want to say thank you for being here. Also, this is the last weekend to sign up for the next Watermark. Watermark is a baptism experience. You'll see people go public with their faith. They'll go under the water showing the death and burial of Jesus Christ, come up out of the water showing the resurrection. Some of us, we were baptized when we were babies, but that was our parents' faith. If you'd like to make your own statement of going public with your faith, I'd encourage you to sign up for it. You can still sign up for this watermark this weekend. If you want to know how to become a member of New Spring, or if you even, you, you might have even said, Mark, I'm close to making a decision to accept Christ, but I'm not sure. I still have other questions. You can let us know, and then you can drop this card either by guest services or in any of the boxes back there. Well, you know, if you're in the Valley of Vision, the one thing you want for the people who are in, in a tough spot is you want their eyes to be open. And we want God to keep our eyes open. Here's a song, as we, uh, as we think about the talk today, here's a song that talks about the importance of having our eyes open.
stand and pray with me. Father, we just ask that you open up our eyes. Let us see the way you see. You've been in the valleys. You understand what we're faced with, and you know we have a choice. So I pray that our heart beats for what your heart beats for, that we're looking for opportunities to restore, to give counsel, to lead, and to guide, and to intercede on our friend's behalf, because we know that pain. So use us. Open our eyes. Let us be useful to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week.